This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. This is Brandon Kelly, the host of Blue Wire's new podcast, Golden Goal. Messi takes everybody on. Messi has got it! From Lionel Messi to Marta to Pele, our show takes a deep dive into soccer superstars. What a World Cup for Megan From Zlatan Ibrahimovic's brash confidence with the play to back it up, to Megan Rapinoe's heroic outspokenness and World Cup flair. Each episode examines a personality of the world's game. We'll dig into Maradona's Hand of God performance and subsequent downfall. The teenage trio at Dortmund that signaled the next generation of superstars. And that infamous headbutt that slung Zinedine Zidane from glory. Golden Goal. Soccer stars and the moments that made them. Premiering this summer on Blue Wire. Hey yo, what is up Hardwood Knox listeners? I am Dan Favalli coming at you with a very special guest this time, a reoccurring guest, one of my good friends and colleagues, Grant Hughes. He is a national NBA writer for Bleacher Report, and if you're not following him on Twitter, you can do so at GT underscore Hughes, spelled exactly as it sounds. New era of Hardwood Knox where I'm going to try and streamline these these openings. So we're just going to get right into it after we shout out our sponsor, as always, betonline.ag. You'll be hearing from them in a second. Grant, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing very well. And I think uh, I would like from now on, uh, you can make a note of this, I'd like to be referred to as a regular. Can we do that? Is there like a test I have to take or anything? No, I mean, if you want to be associated with this podcast, um, we'll, we'll count you in the minority at this point. So you can absolutely be called a regular guest. I'm ready to do that. It sounds good. I brought you on to talk about NBA hard truths, which, as you astutely pointed out, are basically hot takes rebranded. But there were not just the intention here, and I you previewed some of yours with me, so I know you thought about the same way. It wasn't really to just fire off these like incendiary takes. It was really just to talk about things that it feels like people, it's awkward or people don't want to talk about or they don't fully believe. And I think the way you phrased it before we got on, uh, I can't even remember what you said. Was it, what, what, how did you put it? Was it like the, the hate to tell you this, but type yes, of thing? That, like, this is the that, hate to tell frame. you this, but podcast. So, right. Although I don't really hate to tell anybody this, but, but yeah, no, it's like, it is, it's, I don't, you know, the hot take is so stigmatized, <laughs> but like, that's sort of what this is. And, and, and I think we both have just done a little rebrand, but, um, no, it's not like a crazy, we're not saying anything crazy. It's just kind of, uh, like, Hey, pay attention to this. This is a real thing, I think. And you might not like it maybe is a, another way to put it. 
uh, if you're a fan of a specific team, perhaps you won't like it. And I think it's I think it's good to go through this exercise with the NBA uh, projected to restart. And I don't have to ask you about the NBA's restart plan because as a as a regular guest, we've already talked about that. Since the first <laughs> podcast, I don't have to lobby that question out there. Would you like to start us off though? What is your first hard truth? Yeah, so this is a good hard truth, I think. Um, certainly for the Toronto Raptors, and this is like. I'm definitely not diversifying my hot take or hard truth assets very well because this is kind of my go-to in, I did a bold predictions piece today that'll go up, I think, tomorrow. Um, And if I were a gambling man, I would have put some money down on the Raptors at like plus 1400 to win the title. And that is that everyone should be freaking out about the Toronto Raptors. Um, And if you're a Toronto fan freaking out in a good way, if you're uh, another title contender that might make the mistake of overlooking them uh, in a bad way. Um, and I will put you on the spot uh, and start it with this because this sort of frames my thinking on why I think the Raptors absolutely belong with the LA teams and the Bucks on the short list of like, quote unquote, if this team won a title this year, I would not be remotely surprised. Um, and the question is, is there a matchup and we're talking playoffs. I don't really, whatever you want to talk about the these this eight game run up, uh, we can. But um, is there a team that, as you're thinking about a playoff series against Toronto, you say to yourself, "Oh man, like this this is a bad matchup for the Raptors." Do you it, like? It's kind of rhetorical, but but is there anyone that out, is out there that you're like, "Oh, that's going to be rough specifically matchup wise for Toronto." Are we if you are we including potential finals matchups or no? Yes. Yeah. I would probably only say the Clippers, and I'm I'm even because the Bucks in theory should be just because there there is a chance that based off what we've seen this season, uh, there's that uh, the uh, excuse me the Raptors have at least one of the two best players in that series, if not two of them. When you go against the the Clippers, though, there's a chance that you're not going to have even one of the two best players in that series, and it's probably the same case with the Lakers because of LeBron and AD, but the Clippers also have depth like to go along with that, and they can play sort of like the Raptors where they, they can shape-shift their identity, particularly on defense. But I don't think the, and this was probably the point of your question, I don't think there's an easy answer to that because there might not actually be an answer. Yeah, I mean, obviously I was setting it up that way. I think I do take your point, and I think I agree with you that against most of the high against really those other three high profile teams Toronto will not have the best player and to use the Clippers example I I think actually the Paul George versus Pascal Siakam question is close enough to me that like in a seven game series it could tip towards Siakam um but I the way I look at it is you know this is a Raptors team that you know they're second in the conference they're I think tied for third in net rating and they basically did not have their full complement of rotation players healthy, like at all. Their, their projected starting five played 17 games together this year. Um, and if, if we assume, and I think it's fair to, that everybody's ready to go, including Marcus Gasol, who I think still really matters against, say, Joel Embiid, um, you know, Siakam's healthy, uh, Van Vliet's healthy, Norm Powell's healthy, all, all that stuff. They just, like, they just match up really well with everybody because Ananobi, I think, is about as good as you can do against high-scoring, you know, star-quality wings. He might on the ball, be I the think. best on-ball defender in the NBA right I, now. See, I think that was a hot take like six months ago, but I think like I 100% agree. I I just think that like 
everyone else is late to this maybe. Um, but yeah, that's where it starts. And I think Siakam, I mean, look, if you want to put Siakam on Paul George or, you know, if he's on LeBron or if he's on even AD, he's undersized, but like, that's not a walkover matchup. Siakam, I think is not in Ananobi's class as an on-ball defender, but might be he's certainly better off the ball. Um, and he's going to hold up. You've got like, think about a Lakers matchup in the finals, Van Fleet and Lowry going against say like, Caruso and J.R. Smith or KCP, who's fine, but like they're going to run circles around those guys. There's just the more I thought about it, you take the title experience, you take Siakam's leap, you take Ananobi being healthy, which he wasn't last playoffs. Um, you take Lowry just being like validated as a real big game player now after that false narrative was gone. You take Nick Nurse, I think, is the best like tactical coach in the league. He's going to do a bunch of weird stuff, and he's got all these healthy guys as options to kind of mess around with scheme-wise. I, I don't know. I, I definitely am like kind of firing myself up too much because it feels like a, a you know contrarian take, and that's kind of a fun spot to be in. But I just I'm so all in on Toronto, and I think teams and and fans that are overlooking the Raptors just because I mean I say just because, but since they don't have Kawhi Leonard and Danny Green, um, I just don't—I—I I, I just don't think they can be overlooked uh, and belong in that group of like absolute elite, elite title threats. It's—I almost maybe I've followed too many Raptors people on Twitter because that almost doesn't feel hot enough. I think, mm. and I've been asked the question a bunch, whether I'm on a podcast or a radio spot, who do you view as the biggest threat to Milwaukee in the East? And I, I think it's Toronto. I, I know that's people, a no-brainer, right? I, I know a lot of people have thrown Boston out there, but. No. Uh, yeah. And Gasol, I'll be curious to see because you mentioned a potential matchup with Embiid. I feel like that's the only area in which his weight loss might hurt him. When you're looking at what they might need him to do to help with a Brooke Lopez or a Giannis Antetokounmpo, uh, the, just being lighter on his feet in general, he was already one of the smartest half court defenders in the NBA. That should probably help him. But Embiid is just this monstrosity. And so I'd be curious about that. But they just have so many different looks and players they could throw at you. And they're just, it's these random things that, you know, if Nick nurse, depending on if someone's injured, Oh, do you want to play Rondé Hollis Jefferson at center? Yeah, I'll go do that. Uh, yep. Terrence Davis. This is a Terrence Davis fan club over here. Just like, like, and, and Terrence Davis too, who I'm fascinated by, he wasn't playing as much um, leading into the league shutdown. And I think part of that has to do with uh, Toronto's fascination or preference for Patrick McCaw, which I don't necessarily agree with, but Terrence Davis could end up being a swing piece in certain matchups because I feel like he can provide some wing defense and he has this nifty second jump around the rim to follow his own misses, even though he's only, what, what is he, 6'4", or whatever he is. So I really, I like Toronto, and I, I agree that this is probably a harder truth for people who are outside of Toronto or maybe aren't following Toronto as closely because I don't, I think everyone expected them to maybe blow it up this year. They're like sort of the... Toronto and Oklahoma City are the two teams I've become like emotionally attached to this season as just sort of this detached observer. Those are the teams that I zero in on because they, uh, it, you know, I thought I was higher on Toronto than most, but I, I was like, oh, they'll get a attaboy five seed or four seed, not two seed in the East. And, and so I'm in agreement with you. I'm curious to know just nationally how much that registers on the, the hard truth scale. Like has the perception turned or is it, you know, Jason Tatum has played so well now that people are all Celtics or they're infatuated with the heat um, or they're still, you know, looking at, at the Sixers. I I'd just be curious to know what the cat more casual fan. And that's not an insult, what they think about the Raptors. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of the, you know, this being a hot take or a hard truth depends entirely on that. I just, the other thing that I meant to mention is that uh, sort of as an additional thought exercise 
for for the Raptors is like just say they they draw Mil- they get they get Milwaukee in the conference finals um, and they just they solve them. Which I think if you're going to pick a team to solve the Bucks because the Bucks have this rep, I think somewhat deservedly as solvable because they're the most obvious, you know, adherence to system basketball in the league. Nick Nick Nurse is the coach I would pick to solve the Bucks, um, and Giannis leaves that series thinking like, "Well, I'm out of here. Where should I go?" And it's like it's an open secret that Masai Ujiri and Toronto are targeting Giannis. It's like that's just a thing. I think casual or not, we can all agree that that's been out there. Um, <laughs> so talk about why everyone should be freaking out about the Raptors, which is my sort of headline for this take. Like there's there it is because that's the second stage fallout of if Toronto really performs, you know, as well as I think it could, um, is they end up with Giannis uh, via trade. So I don't know. It's just that's that's really the, the the monster ripple effect that I think could come out. But um, you, you mentioned Jason Tatum, which I want to get to uh, soon. But do you have uh, a uh, one to fire back at me before we talk Boston and Tatum? Yes, and this is sort of a a pulled one because. I co-authored Bleacher Report's top 100 players of the 2019-2020 season so far. So it was a retrospective. Uh, And the response was profusely against Chris Middleton being ranked 10th. And so my hard truth is, this season, I'm not predicting what's going to happen in the playoffs because I wouldn't put him at 10 looking at the playoffs, but this season, Chris Middleton has added top 10 value. Just one, I think you need to look at the the superstar pool this year and guys who are absent or just had such limited availability, you can't say they added top 10 value. Kevin Durant, Stephen Curry, even Paul George would normally be in that discussion, but he hasn't really, he hasn't played a ton this year. And Kyrie Irving only playing in what was it, 20 games or whatever it was. So I totally recognize that in a normal season, Chris Middleton isn't a top 10 player. This year though, he absolutely is. And he's, I know, I, I want to use this more so to say, by extension, I also think that he is a capable number two on a championship team. And I know the knock against him has been that he's not this conventional star. And I, I guess you can say that because who wants to build around Chris Middleton? But the the Bucks are destroying opponents when, when Middleton plays without Giannis Attentacumpo this year. Um, he's actually logged more than 750 possessions without Attentacupo and Eric Bledsoe, and the Bucks have an offensive rating in the 99th percentile. And they were similarly good last year as well. I know it fell apart in the playoffs, but Giannis also kind of didn't fall apart, but he struggled in that series against the Raptors. And I, I really do think that people underestimate Chris Middleton's own creation like that is ingrained into his game he runs pick and rolls into pull-up jumpers he shoots over mismatches mismatches excuse me in iso and from the post tough fadeaways are business as usual for him his off the dribble three it's deployed in smaller doses but it remains effective and he's the secondary playmaker that everyone's waiting for jason tatum to be which for now is why i'd put middleton ahead of Tatum, at least relative to what's already happened this season. And they're not complicated passes he's making, but he's just finding the right guy when he's coming around screens. And so I believe, even in a normal season, that Chris Middleton can be the number two on a championship team. And this, I think, is another hard truth. And I'm saying this after ranking Giannis Antetokounmpo as the best player in the NBA this season from what we've seen already. 
if he can't be, I think that actually says more about Giannis than it may about Chris Middleton. Because if you need Stephen Curry to be your number two, uh, or you know, if you wanted to go to Dallas, you need Luka Doncic to be your number two. Like those are clear cut number ones. And so if if there's something about Giannis's games where his increased pull up volume, that fadeaway volume, it doesn't really help. Um, you know, keep the offense from getting bogged down in the half court during the playoffs. I, that's not going to necessarily make me think any less of Giannis. But if you need a top, let's say, like if you need a top ten player to be your sidekick to win a title. I'm I'm not I think that does in fact say more about you than it would about a sidekick who this season is going to make an all NBA team. And that might be the the harder truth for me to deliver just because I I love Giannis, but if you yeah and it's also it's a little hypocritical because LeBron has Anthony Davis, Kawhi Leonard has Paul George, but what is the gap separating Chris Middleton from Paul George this season. I'm talking specifically about the season. I think he's added more value because he's been more available, but in the role that these two are playing where, you know, he's seeding volume to Giannis and George is seeding volume and status to Kawhi Leonard. I just don't see defensively. Yeah. There, there's probably a, a chasm there, but overall there's not like this huge gap. And so if Giannis Antetokounmpo can't win, or if the Bucks can't win a championship with this team and it's because someone like Middleton didn't play up to snuff when Antetokounmpo was struggling, I still think that would probably say more about Giannis as a number one, or at least just as much as it would about Middleton. So the Giannis thing is fascinating to me because you sort of are making me consider like big picture questions that I hadn't really before as they apply to him. And if you think it just, you know, you can't go back too far because the game was so different, but, but if you look at it now, I really don't think you can be a primary ball handling perimeter oriented player, which is sort of a funky category to put Giannis in because he's, he's, you know, he dominates inside so thoroughly, but you, your weakness really can't be shooting. You can have other weaknesses. Like, so just using examples of some of the guys you mentioned, like Curry is not a wing. Number one, he is the guy that opposing, you know, playoff teams target defensively just sort of by default, but you know, th- there are other players that have been imperfect that have been the best players on title teams. Um, but the commonality in all of them is that they can shoot. And I think this feeds into, I would say that not only would the Bucks sort of, you know, disappointing or whatever, because Middleton wasn't up to snuff, say more about Giannis than it would about Middleton. I think it would say more about the constraints that a player like Giannis puts on a team and the the way that that forces certain types of like system ball that in the playoffs, given enough time and enough scouting, can sort of get solved. And I keep uh, the second time I've used that, but like you can't be a solvable team and win a title. That you have to. You, that's just. And with Giannis, there is an exploitable weakness. I know he's willing to shoot more threes, but I take your point. I think that if Middleton is not good enough as your second option, and look, just as you were talking, Middleton is one of five guys this year six with over 61 true shooting on over 26 usage um that's you know the others Harden Davis Lillard Booker um I don't think it's a it's it's a hot take to say that based on this year Middleton is better than Tatum better than a lot of other potentially even bigger names um but it is really interesting to me that Middleton might be the guy that gets wrongly undervalued or blamed 
if the Bucks disappoint. Now, if he plays like he did in you know, last year's playoffs, that's different. But I, I feel like what you're saying is that based on this season, it's not it's not really even controversial to say that he's a top 10 value. I, I think that's right. Um, and I think the comparison to Tatum is really interesting because I think Tatum, in addition to sort of doing this weird thing where he ascended like <laughs> over the span of a month, you know, which just doesn't really happen in real time, which I think inflated his league-wide perception. But he also, I think, is perceived as having like a different role than Middleton, like more of a primary creation role. But to your point, Middleton's perfectly capable creating shots for himself for other guys when Giannis is off the floor. So I do think that Tatum gets a little bit of a boost, possibly undeserved, because he sort of fits the profile as the 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 top option wing, you know, get your own shot, get other guys' shots, um, that Middleton doesn't really get viewed that way, which I think is is wrong, and I think is part of the reason that he isn't kind of, you know, viewed as the no-brainer top 10 value-add guy that Tatum maybe by some people is. I think Tatum, and I'd probably diverge from you, and that might be a good segue into the Tatum stuff, but I, I think Tatum's rise lasted longer um, than a month, and it was just a little bit more gradual, and that it was really only highlighted um, for that time. So, but yeah, the, the points on Middleton, like they're, they're just absolutely spot on for me. I mean, look, he was 64th in isolation in the 64th percentile of isolation efficient efficiency this season, 86th percentile as a scorer out of the, um, the pick and roll. And he's someone who can work as, as a spot up shooter. If you need to, he's been shooting the lights out from mid range again. And it seems like coach Bud has just been like, yeah, just let the volume fly. I'm going to lose that battle. Anyway, uh, 83rd percentile of, of post-up efficiency, too, which isn't a huge part of his game, but there are just so many things he could do as a scorer that even if you don't think, in a vacuum, he's not a top 10 player in a regular season. So I would use this more to inform the, the other truth, which is I think he's absolutely a viable number two on a title team. Yeah, I think that's right. Sports are coming back, and so are your chances to bet on your favorite teams and events. And there's no better place to start than our exclusive partner, Bet Online. Get in on the action for this week's big UFC fight, or check out odds on NASCAR, Formula One, and the Premier League. Can't wait for your team to come back? Bet Online has futures odds, including win totals, division winners, and even league championships. Or check out daily simulations of Madden and NBA 2K to watch and wager on. Visit betonline.ag and use promo code BLUEWIRE to receive your new welcome bonus. That's promo code BLUEWIRE, all one word. Bet online, your online wagering experts. Let's jump to Tatum, who, like, I think actually right now that's what Tatum is, like skill wise and value wise. Um, but I think the percept. Do you agree that the perception of Tatum is that sort of he's really right on the cusp, or maybe is already ready to be like the number one guy to to lead a, a maybe not necessarily a title team but a team to the finals do you feel like that's how he's kind of come to be viewed now yeah and i think i actually might even be among the people that view him in that light so here's my pushback against that and and i guess this is this is just the hard truth i just don't think he is as good right now not saying he won't be that guy um eventually he's still really young i don't think he's that good now and I think what what I have a problem with or what, what sort of gives me pause about sort of his profile is that, you know, you, I think you're right. I've maybe oversimplified it that he had a hot month 
um, it's very clear that he's added like his bag is so much deeper now. He gets to the to the basket a ton more often than he used to. His handles tightened up a lot. He has a bunch of one and two dribble moves at a triple threat to just roast guys. His step back is a lot better. But but the breakout sort of narrative to me kind of got built on the fact that he just hit every pull up three he took for a really long time. And it's, it is again, an oversimplification, but he hit 48%, 48.7% of the 6.3 pull-up threes he attempted per game in February. 48.7% of high volume pull-up threes. Seems high. Um, seems high. Here's how high it is. Damian Lillard is the best pull-up three-point shooter in the league this year among guys that shot at least four per game. He shot 40.1%. So Tatum is way better. In this month, one month span, which I'm cherry picking a little, but I do think February is when the narrative started of oh, Tatum is it. Um, he's not going to hit almost half of his pull up threes at high volume ever, first of all, because nobody does, um, but certainly not in a playoff run. So while I do think Tatum is on the very short list of guys that, like, it, it, you know, 25 and under or whatever that I want to build a franchise around. Um, as he exists as a player right now, I think he's getting a little too much clout from totally unsustainable outside shooting. And I don't know if that's hot because it may be a hot take because maybe that's been said. Um, but just sort of four months removed from watching basketball, that's really settled into me as like a, a narrative that kind of got away from us a little bit. So I think he's just scoring so well in difficult in so many difficult situations that I don't know that we can call it a fluke. Like, no, he's not going to hit half of his pull-up threes before the season among everyone attempting at least three pull-up threes per game only Dame and, and Karis LeVert shout out Karis LeVert are downing <laughs> are downing theirs at a better clip uh Nikola Jokic is the only player who has converted more looks inside four seconds of the shot clock and Tatum's 55.7 effective field goal percentage inside uh four seconds of the shot clock ranks first out of 104 players who have 50 more 50 or more of those attempts under their belt and when you combine that with they've basically doubled up his pick and roll volume from last year, I've, the scoring to me is for real. I don't know if there will always be the tug of war between can he get to the basket more. Like you already mentioned, I think he's done a better job of that. It does feel like there could be that, that push and pull, that ebb and flow to it moving forward. Mm -hmm. And that's mostly fine. I might just be more concerned about if they're going to give him this much pick and roll volume, can he turn it into more playmaking? particularly in, in the playoffs when presumably it gets harder to navigate these half-court defenses, he has the lowest assist rate of anyone in the league with his his usage. And I've seen him throw some like really nice passes, but if you ask me who has the higher ceiling as a passer, um, let's use Karis LeVert as an example. Uh, I think Karis LeVert is going to be a better passer and is already a better passer than Jason Tatum. Chris Middleton is is already there. I don't know if he'll ever take that, even that Kawhi, Kawhi Leonard type leap. And certainly I'm not even going to include this season when they had uh, Kawhi running like 80 million pick and rolls at the start of the year when Paul George was out. So that might be something that um, I I'd be more concerned about moving forward, but I, I view his offense as basically established at this point. And then when you just combine that, I think he does have all NBA caliber defense. It's his workload is sort of streamlined by Jalen Brown defends a lot of the, you know, bigger forwards and you have Marcus smart there. Um, but Tatum provides really good help around the basket, um, and he can make he makes some you know I would call them safe gambles if there is such a thing. So just based on the impact he's had 
I think it's fair to wonder, can he be the best player on a championship team right now? But it definitely seems like he's headed in, in that direction. Yeah, I think that's all I'm saying. I would hate to make it sound like I'm shitting on him as a, as a prospect, which he sort of, I mean, if we're going to be honest about it, he still is in like the prospect phase of his development because he's only 22. But um, I just, I'm not ready to give him the, Kawhi's a really interesting comparison actually, because I think there's a future where he is almost like that kind of a two-way, uh, like I'm going to decide the the results of this playoff series player. I'm just mm-hmm. saying, I don't think he's there yet. And I'm, it feels to me like, uh, that's the, the it feels to me like a lot of people think he is there. Um, and I just think he's, he's going to get there, but he isn't there. Yet. What would you Maybe call a him small then distinction right now? If I had to put you on, is it, you know, top, if he, if you don't think he's top 10 or top 12 already, where do you think he falls? Man, I am so bad at the rankings. I would say that I'll, I would frame it this way. Well, this is going to be such a cop out because this is just a, a, a factual statement about what he is. <laughs> I think he can be the best player on a team that wins like up, you know, high fifties or up to sixty games in a full season. Like I think that's where he is. Sixties maybe a little a little high, but um, so if that if that makes him top ten, it's such a hard question because well, here's, like, he's maybe. Go ahead. Maybe it's a better way to frame it would be, so right now, and you're not saying he won't be this in the future, but right now you're saying that he is not going to be the best player on a, on a championship team. Like Absolutely. the Celtics aren't going to win not. the title this year. Correct. That, that's what I would say. That might be a better way <laughs> to boil take, it right? <laughs> that's, I mean, <laughs> yeah, one of the other 15 teams that makes the playoffs hey, is going to win. Hey, Dan, I'm taking the field over Jason Tatum. <laughs> Mark it down. That is bold. Yeah, right? No, I, yeah, I don't know. I, he's really good. I just, uh, I, I thinking more and more about it. I, I'm not sure that he's quite as good yet as uh, perception is. Um, let's see. I, that was kind of that was my that was my Jason Tatum piece. I have a Russell Westbrook thought. Would you like to hear that one? Uh, let Let's stay in the Eastern Conference first. With okay, uh, I have one. I'm out on the Sixers still, even though they're moving. And I told you I was going to force this into the discussion because I wanted to talk about Ben Simmons moving to the four. I'm just still kind of out on them. I I know the numbers are good when Embiid and Simmons play with Al Horford. And as we mentioned before we recorded this, Shake Milton was playing well leading into the break. I just don't, I don't trust that this team in the aggregate has enough secondary ball handling or ball handling at all and functional shooting. Not just someone who's going to hit a three, but can score a three off the dribble can face up and get you a bucket that way, or just even score, you know, quick fire coming around a screen. I just, I really, I doubt it. And again, the offense rates in the 93rd percentile when Embiid and Simmons play without Horford this year. So I am sort of going against convention, but I'm still just sort of out on them. And I'm, I think this off season, maybe this isn't so hot, but I, I think what needs to be spicy about it is, I believe that they need to do something major. I wouldn't fire Brett Brown, and I wouldn't trade Simmons or Embiid. Those are the only things that I really wouldn't do. And I don't know what you can do with Al Horford. He's owed $81 million over the next three seasons, um, $69 million guaranteed. And then Tobias Harris is on the books for four years and $147.3 million, which arguably could be harder to move just based on the salary cap probably shrinking this year. If I'm them... I'm I'm trying to get Chris Paul from OKC with Horford as the anchor. What do you need to attach to it? Is it Richardson? Is it a pick? I would I probably wouldn't give up Thibault in that situation, but I'd, I'd be willing to listen about it. Can you even get into the conversation for 
and Oladipo or Bradley Beal. And so I did think that maybe this wasn't a hard enough truth. So I'm going to loop it into this. And I believe that one of the Sixers or the Pacers is going to be, I don't want to say quasi dismantled, but they're going to end up trading at least one of their four best players, if not two, over the summer. And for the Pacers, this is just a nod towards the the Victor Oladipo stuff. I don't know if there's a disconnect between he and the organization, but if they're at all worried about him leaving in 2021 free agency, even if the relationship is good, you have to look at trading him. And maybe you don't even want to pay him because of this ruptured right quad that might keep him out of Disney, but also might not keep him out of Disney because he's feeling he's feeling great. And I don't know that you want him to be the player that you pay near max money to. And for the Pacers, you also aren't going to pay near max money to four different players. You have Brogdon, Turner, Sabonis, and then Oladipo. They're making nearly $80 million combined next season. Once Oladipo's on his new contract, you know, he's around 20, 21 million right now. So that probably goes up by, you know, a few million. So you're looking between like 84 to 86 million. I don't see them making that type of commitment to four players. And then, of course, there's the Sabonis-Turner partnership. It, it feels like that just needs to be busted up, that one of them needs to go. I still am bullish on Miles Turner's future over Sabonis, even though he's been appreciably the better player this season. It also seems like Turner would be the player who's more scalable to teams, and so he's going to give you more on the trade market. It might just be easier to move. So that... I wanted to make sure I looped this into a real hard truth and didn't want to make it seem like a cop-out because I'm sure plenty of people are out on the Sixers, but that's sort of, I just still don't feel great about Philly. I'm fascinated by them, but they make me wildly uncomfortable, and I think one of these two teams, and it's almost, I think it's more context-dependent um, for the Sixers looking at the postseason than it is for the Pacers because they just might not have Oladipo or he just might not even look that great because of how little he's played this year. But I still believe that one of them is going to end up making major changes this summer. I, so it's like you, you it's like you're uh, inside my brain a little bit because the last couple of things I've worked on included uh, sort of a bold prediction that one was that the Sixers will not improve their playoff seed, which is sixth during this uh, run up to the playoffs, um, which is just sort of a nuts take because their schedule is super easy. Um, and you know, they should move up, but I don't think they will. And a lot of it has to do with the things that you mentioned, which are that, that I would sort of synthesize and just say, there's just, there's too many, they're less than the sum of their parts. The holes less than the sum of the parts. There's too many weird things about the fit of all these players. There's just like not new information. And then the home road split probably doesn't mean anything, but it's so crazy that the 29 (laughs) and two at home and the 10 and 24, like that just, that makes me with no factual basis to it at all. Think like something's wrong here. There's just, this isn't working. That is the basis of this podcast. We don't want any factuality here. It just, it comes down. So uh, yeah, I agree with that. The pay. And then the other thing is, is I was working on trades to uh, get, you know, non-playoff teams into the playoffs. And I kept going back to the Pacers uh, to to because thinking on the thinking that like well the Pacers got to break up break this up they're not going to pay over eighteen point five million a piece to four different guys next year and then with the possibility of Oladipo making significantly more than that if they extend them like I just which would be the next year but you get the idea the Pacers are so tax averse historically and just have made you know had a ton of success while being kind of penny pinchers like that's just that's untenable for for that organization to have four high dollar guys. So I do think that of the two, 
the Sixers seem to me like the more likely to have the you know the, the blow up or the significant big name move just because they're viewed as you know all right you know we went through the their, their circumstances are different we went through the process we came out the other side with Embiid and Simmons and there the window is now it's open now because Embiid's health is always going to be a question that that whole thing um if they don't deliver which i kind of don't think they will um it means so much more than if the pacers don't for several reasons just but the biggest one being that nobody expects the pacers to really do anything um so i do think that the sixers are kind of primed for for some kind of big shakeup. chris paul look i honestly if if that was possible if if that was in the cards a chris paul trade i, I think that you, I would give up Tybul. I would give up basically every future asset I had because this is really your shot. I, I don't think you know that you, you can sort of have it both ways. If you're gonna, if you're gonna overpay for Chris Paul, who I don't even know what sort of the the asking price is for him at this point because he played great this year, but he's gonna be a year older. But also another year comes off his deal, so he's more palatable. I don't know, but he he's someone that fits exactly what they need. Um, he's, he'd be the adult in the room. He'd get Simmons off the ball more. Um, I just, I think I would kind of go really all in for him. Uh, it would just be a question of does the Thunder want anything that the Sixers could put together for that. I don't, I would just be curious because Horford's deal is, it spans longer than Chris Paul's, even though it's cheaper uh, during that time. Uh, particularly when you look at the guaranteed money, I think he would save like almost $17 million. Uh, And look, he'd be reunited with Billy Donovan. I don't really know if that matters at all. But Steven Adams is already there. I don't know what you would have to attach. You also have to attach more salary to make the money work. Um, and at that point, Josh Richardson, it was Josh Richardson and Horford. Does that do it? And if you're the Sixers, do you do, you do that trade? I don't know. I, I, I mean... I don't know. I just think, well, maybe this will transition us to, it depends on if you think the window is right now um, and it, or, or if the window is, is shut and we're going to, I know you want to talk about the jazz a little bit, but um, do you have another East guy, East team to get to? Cause I have a, I have a title window one myself that i like to I'm, hit. Real I'm quick. ready to hear. Let's talk about Chris Paul's former team. Russell, Russell Westbrook's now team, now current team. Oh yeah. I a- forgot. I already moved on from Russell Westbrook. Um, no, this is a, this is a quick one. I, I just think, and this is a hard truth. Uh, I, I, we've continued to like sort of draw a dividing line between casual and non-casual fans. And if you said to the casual fan that Russell Westbrook is really, really going to matter a ton, uh, in the Rockets playoff run, they'd be like, cool, he's great. But I think for people that have kind of been on the side that he's a floor raising kind of overrated, inefficient player for several years. Um, that's a scary thought, but here's, here's the idea. Um, and I'll concede that, uh, he's been way better since the Rockets abandoned centers kind of, uh, convinced him to stop shooting threes, convinced him, or maybe he decided whatever, get to the basket all the time, finish at the rim, don't shoot jump shots, just run around, cut, um, do all this stuff in a spaced out floor. Um, I think that like, look, the, the layoff, you can say it's going to revive Harden. Um, he's not going to have this typical kind of playoff wear down disappointment. Um, I'll believe that when I see it, I'll believe that the foul drawing stuff, um, you know, will continue to work, uh, in the playoffs when I see it, it just hasn't. 
I think Harden is, you know, still a great player, but I do think that Westbrook's role in Houston's success or failure might be as big as Harden's because Harden will get the attention. Um, and I think Westbrook is going to have to play at least as well as he did sort of when he flipped the switch or got things figured out, um, you know, midway through this year. And I just question whether, um, he's capable of that. Um, I haven't been the biggest Westbrook fan, uh, just in general, but I think it is a hard truth that like rockets, uh, a lot depends on Russell Westbrook going forward. And that's kind of a dicey proposition to me. I I don't know if doubt is a, is a hard truth for when it comes to Russell Westbrook just yet. I don't, I'm not sure who was actually a fan of, of that trade. And it probably looks a little bit better now because he's actually been, you know, better than James Harden, um, playing better than James Harden, excuse me for, right. for, for a little while be- uh, before the league shut down in theory though, this is the first time that he's ever been able to like play with, you know, four shooters around him. The fact that it took this long into his career for that to happen is actually sort of, wild and i think that lends itself to hey maybe the way he's playing right now is it can work but like at what cost is it taking the ball out of harden's hands a little bit too much which seems stupid because harden is so high usage and then you do have to think about the long-term viability of this he's on the books for three years at at super max money after this one so I'm definitely with you with the, the skepticism uh i just don't i honestly don't know and i'm curious to see how it works out in the playoffs because I, I, you know, I'm a fan of small ball, and so I tend to think that they'll be able to mismatch a few teams into oblivion. And it's it's like you mentioned. I mean, so many more of his field goal attempts are coming inside five feet, uh, and I, I think that ultimately works. But you're punting on the rebounding battle, and then you are going to go through stretches where Russ takes his usual shots. Um, he's even been shooting above thirty five percent from three, I believe, since. Clint Capella left the rotation, not even before he was traded, but since he left the rotation. When that sort of reverts to normal, that could hurt you, even though his volume is down. And so there's there seems like there's a lot of variance in the Rockets' outcomes, and it's definitely fair to wonder whether this is a just a championship-level team. It's not. <laughs> it's just full stop for me. I, I don't know. I, I, I just, uh, for all the reasons, you know, I, I love small ball too. I just think... They, they just don't have enough players, number one. Um, and number two, I think, I'm with Charles Barkley now with my numbering my points. Um, I, I, I just, uh, I'm not ready. This is, again, we keep going back to gut stuff because it's been so long since we've seen basketball. I feel like I'm just reverting to that. Like, I just don't think Harden um, is, is capable of leading a championship team, at least this champion, team to a championship. I don't think Westbrook is either. And I think together, same deal. Um, championship wise though you have a jazz take are you ready to give me your jazz take yeah i think and i know there are a lot of jazz fans that listen to this podcast and so i'm saying this out of just genuine concern about the team's future i think that while while they needed to go all in last se- last off season i think that like the opportunity to win a title with this core is gone and i don't like if you want to say that, well, they're still next year. Mike Conley's under contract. That's mostly fine to me, but there's just something about them just feels 
untenable to me. And so you have like losing Bojan Bogdanovic for the rest of this year, like it really ends up hurting. Conley and Ingles are going to be in their age 33 seasons next year. Bogdanovic will be in his age 31 campaign. Gobert is super max eligible after this season. And when his next deal kicks in, it'll be for his age 29 season. Donovan Mitchell is going to be on, on max money. Uh, they'll probably sign him to an extension this offseason. Um, regardless, the, the following year he's going to be on a, on a max money deal, 2021-2022. I don't want I, I would wonder if that payroll is tenable. If you have Gobert, Mitchell, and then Bogdanovich is going to be wrapping up his big money deal, what are you going to do after Mike Conley comes off the books? Like, what's the answer in the backcourt with Mitchell? Do you think that he's going to be a primary point guard at that point? There's a lot of versatility to this team, but I, I just don't, I don't see them genuinely contending for a title anymore. I think Mike Conley would have to be Memphis Mike Conley for that to happen. And so there is room for me to be, there's always room for me to be wrong because I'm always wrong. And so if Mike Conley comes back and they're just torching opponents in the playoffs, but if, if Mike Conley is just on a decline, which again is incredibly possible, that ends up being a huge problem for this team. And the only way that I could think of wedging open the, the title window or even opening it at all would be, can you work out a Conley for Chris Paul type deal? Are you willing to even pay that? Because Paul has, I think 85.6 is the exact number million and two years left on his contract. So in the final year of his deal, you'll be talking about a new deal, Rudy Gobert, and a new deal, Donovan Mitchell. That might be financially untenable for Utah. What I would also do this offseason is that if you can't get Gobert on what you think is a reasonable extension, um, or he's really looking for big money, I, I would look at trading him. And I know that sounds so stupid because he's a generational defender, and I'm, I'm not doubting that. He might, I don't think he should win Defensive Player of the Year this year. He, I believe he was my pick the past two seasons. And if he won it this year, I wouldn't, you know, I, I wouldn't really have any criticism there. I know it seemed like he, there were some dynamic issues on the court where he seemed more frustrated and didn't, it didn't look like for, there was this part of the season where the games that I tuned into, it didn't feel like he was just getting back as quickly as he normally does. I, I get that moving him sounds dumb because what are you going to get for him just because of the way that, um, the center position has gone over the past few years. At the same time, that deal in that he will sign in 2021 free agency, whether it comes from you or another team, because there will be a team that that pays him, just because there's going to be more teams with cap space at that point. And look, he's a generational defender, but you have to at least gauge the market for him. And I also know that he's your best player, but I, I also believe that Donovan Mitchell is easier to build around just because of the type of game that he plays, which is he's a primary scoring guard. He can face up, attack the ball off the dribble. It's not just that he makes the glitzy plays. It's that he's going to be a, he's more likely to be an offensive engine. And I think those are better to build championship teams around uh, than these, you know, a defensive stalwart like Rudy Gobert. And so I'm not even saying that Rudy Gobert can be mismatched off the floor because even when he struggled against the Rockets last year, the Jazz were able to find ways around that and he can step out and is quicker there. And I think people give him credit for, he's a really good player, but if I'm the Jazz, I'm, I'm looking at what happened this season. I'm just looking at the age of some of these guys. I'm looking at the contract situations and unless I'm going to double down and again, go after that Chris Paul trade. I'm, I'm going to look at moving Rudy Gobert. I don't know that I ultimately do it, but saying that these are the two that you want to build around and, and build a championship-type team around, I don't think you can default to that right now. And this says nothing of the friction between them. I'm not, look, everything could be hunky-dory between Donovan Mitchell and Rudy Gobert, and I'm still going to feel the same way. I'm, I'm least concerned about whatever friction exists. The Jazz say they aren't worried about it. You and I know that you don't need to be best friends to 
to win in the NBA. And there's just this, you know, fans are, and I'm not even saying this critically, they're, they're disillusioned if they think that all these guys are, are hanging out and on good terms. It's like, you know, I get this way if there's a band like that you're a fan of. You want them to be just best friends off the stage, but you don't realize that it's actually also a business. And I'm speaking as a Blink-182 diehard here, so I know <laughs> how that works. That's that. So I'm really not worried about that. It's everything else that I just mentioned. And so I think the Jazz, I don't know who I would pick them to beat um, looking at their potential playoff matchups. I'm not sure that I would pick them to win a series right now. And that might change if you know Mike Conley comes back for the remainder of the regular season and he's just dominating, has this chemistry with Gobert out of the pick and roll because he's used to how the Jazz are playing and he's just not dealing with hamstring issues. But this is a team that I don't think that you need to say they should dismantle it and go into a rebuild, but they should probably, to me, look at look at my Conley trade scenarios if they're out there, but Rudy Gobert should not, to me, be untouchable moving forward for this squad. So as you were first talking, um, I, I thought I thought that you were going to sort of frame the the discussion around, well, Go, Gobert is, is going to get, the Jazz are going to pay Gobert the max. Uh, it's like a foregone conclusion, which um, you didn't say, which... I'm glad because that's like the, that hangs over this as much as anything else. If if what we're talking about is whether or not the Jazz's window is shut, um, I agree they're not a threat to to win a title this year. I think winning a series would be probably the high end of their spectrum of outcomes. Um, but but no, I, I think Gobert is not remotely a no brainer supermax guy. Um, in fact, I think it would be a terrible decision. To do that, and so yeah, that's that because then that gets us into this same situation we always get into with huge names that can't agree to terms on a on a giant extension, and then they're trade candidates. That's just sort of how the process operates, um, and so that, as much as anything, um, makes Gobert makes the Jazz their window, if it was open ever, you know, really narrow, maybe shut now. Um, th- the thing, the other thing, though. Is is I do put a lot of stock in the Gobert Mitchell relationship okay. um, on, on it uh, on its own. Um, you know, it wouldn't be it, it, you know all the, in a vacuum, all things being equal, whatever sort of you know caveat you want to put on it. I wouldn't be as concerned about it. But when you combine the fact that the financial circumstances are going to sort of make it, you know prudent or to to move Gobert or sort of make it excusable to the fan base to move Gobert, um, that gives you sort of another reason not to try to mend fences that maybe can't be mended. And I think this is another sort of, you know, talk radio, whatever take, but like how often do you hear rumblings about two stars on a team, you know, not liking each other? And I think that's fair to say they were, you know, certainly Mitchell was really upset at least for a while. Um, and even did you you read the piece, right? Yeah, it was just I, even I, some of the quotes that Gobert gave. I know he was also sort of taking responsibility, but he was like, "Some people just can't take you know, that type of criticism," and that right. that's fine. It was no, just like, that was that was a shot. It seemed very passive aggressive. No, so so just how often do we see that level of pretty obvious, you know, failure to get along uh, correct itself? And and like what's what are it just doesn't. You know, again, no facts, no law. It's just, it just doesn't feel like a situation that we come out the other side of this and they win a title. I just think that's another thing you add to it. Plus the idea that Gobert, great as he is, is not a, not, you know, a top, top, top guy you want as your best player on a championship team just because of his position, his size. It's just, that's not where the league is. Um, 
I do think the, there's another thing that's kind of just by way of comparison, right. To sort of frame this, like, you know, the nuggets, I think are a team that if they were to get bounced in the first round this year, which I also think is possible. Um, they were my championship be- pick at the beginning of the year. I just want the record <laughs> to state that I feel very unconfident in that. Pick. <laughs> it's not looking great. Um, but no, so yeah, no. I, and at the time, sure. Right. Like, they 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 were young. Jokic had an absolutely great shot to win MVP. He he ended up playing great. But but here's the difference. So if the Jazz get bounced, you've got the Mitchell Gobert relationship. You've got Gobert's contract. You've got all these things that say, "All right, this isn't this isn't it. Let's change it." Um, if the Nuggets get bounced, I still think you can chalk it up to well, Jamal Murray's just not ready. Jokic is still young. We like what we have. Let's run it back. Let's try to, you know, upgrade Gary Harris. Let's do this. Let's do that. You're not going to make fundamental changes. You got to decide on Jeremy Grant, Paul Millsap, one, the other, both. I don't know. Um, but I don't think the fallout would be the same. Whereas all this other stuff going into the Jazz situation, I do think distinguishes it and makes it sort of more, uh, I don't know, volatile is not the right word, but sort of more prone to generating a pretty dramatic reaction to a playoff disappointment, if, if that makes any sense. It feels weird to say that, though, because they just went the all-in route. It was right. they traded for Conley and signed Boyan Bogdanovich in the same offseason. Yeah, you know, it doesn't always work. <laughs> the Conley thing was a failure, and injury had some a lot to do with that. But but you mentioned some of the ages, too. Like, there are a lot of key guys. Gobert's 28. I mean, that's not old, but but if you're picking between him and Mitchell... Um, right. I mean, look, addition- a four-year deal is going to take him through his age 33 season or something like that. That's that's dangerous. And I'm not I don't think he's they shouldn't give him the supermax. And if they do, no, it's going to be an issue. Uh, but I don't even like and it, this isn't even a I'm not trying to take a shot at his actual value, but just the way teams are built now and, and how he's used relative to what the ideal center is. Like, what can you afford to pay him without actually hamstringing yourself how much do you want to invest in your in your starting center even if he is going to contend for defensive player of the year awards for the next i guess it could be fair to say if he stays healthy the next half decade yeah no it's yeah it's it, you could two things can be true gobert can be a great player and that can be true and it can also be true that the jazz shouldn't build their team around him you know that that right. just that's just not his fault that's just circumstances being what they are financially interpersonally positionally um it's just you know that i think i i totally agree with you um about the jazz's window being shut and i think maybe in hindsight it was never actually uh open in the first place the the thing that i really only just occurred to me too though is that moving him becomes tricky not only because what is going to be the demand but the Jazz aren't go- going to be looking to start over. It'd be different if they were, and so that you can, you know, if Charlotte came with all the picks and Miles Bridges and uh, you know PJ Washington, and again, all, just this year's pick, future picks, because you know they're going to suck anyway. I'm not. I might have just named one of the least attractive uh, rebuilding <laughs> team packages out there. You know, even the Knicks could be thrown in there, but you're going to want these win now pieces. And so, what team is going to help facilitate that? type of deal uh you know brooklyn kind of stands out to me where they have lavert and spencer dinwiddie and, and jared allen uh 
I, but they also have DeAndre Jordan. So do they want Rudy Gobert? Because apparently KD and Kyrie think uh, that he that DeAndre Jordan is still a star. And DeAndre Jordan seems like a good dude. He also has apparently has really good friends. So I'm just I'm like struggling. I know people name the Celtics, but they don't really want rim running bigs. And they're definitely not gonna even if they traded for him. You can't. That's not gonna be a situation that I think they're gonna want to pay him. And then two, they don't have the salary matching fodder to do it unless you're including Gordon Hayward in there. And that's just. That's hysterical because that's not happening. And so you go through these teams. I just don't know who Gobert is great. I just don't know what team is like going to go all in on a trade for him. I was messing around with uh, with trade ideas the other day, and uh, one of the interesting teams that came up was the Bulls. And you'd have to sort of accept the idea that um, they would max him out, but like you could do something with if if Chicago said. Take Kobe White, take Wendell Carter Jr. We'll give you a, a first rounder with you know light, if any, protections. Thaddeus Young to make the money work. Give us Rudy Gobert, and then you see Chicago with Gobert, and they bring back Chris Dunn, so you got your defensive sort of bookends, and then you can just get away with Zach Levine and Laurie Markin and, and Otto Porter sort of in between that, and that's kind of interesting. And if you're the Bulls, it'd certainly be splashy. I'm not sure that the Jazz would be interested in you know, a, a sort of a project center, but I do like Carter and a scoring guard who, I don't know how you fit that with Mitchell, but like there's sort of a squint really hard and see something there, but I, you know, would Gobert want to, maybe that's the only, you know, honestly, it would depend a lot on who's willing to pay him what he thinks right. he's worth. And, and that might really narrow the teams down to maybe he's not going to land on a winner and stick with one. If, if it comes down to money, I don't know. I don't know if those are his intentions, but yeah, I, I totally agree that it is tough to sort of figure out what to do with him. If, if it comes to the point that you got to do something with him. Do you have any hard truths left? Oh, I got another kind of a bummer one. It's real quick. I just, <laughs> it, it fits into, <laughs> it fits into sort of what we've been talking about. I think the warriors run as like a serious title threat is it's, it's over. I don't know if that's hot. I mean, I think Steph Curry, we, we've said, you used the term generational talent. I mean, Curry's, you could make a case still that he's the most, the biggest difference maker you can put on an NBA roster. Um, I think Clay Thompson will be good, I, I think, but that's not enough. I think Andrew Wiggins is still Andrew Wiggins. I think Draymond Green is very clearly going to age poorly um, and has already probably started that, although it's hard to really be sure just because he was not trying this year, understandably. Um, I think the only, the, you know, getting Giannis somehow, um, or somehow hitting just a monster home run with the trade exception, um, would be really the only way forward. Um, but I, I, so if you, let's frame it this way, is Steph Curry going to win another championship in his career with the Warriors? Oh man. I don't. That's such a tough question. I, I know. I. I. I don't think so. Um. And I would. And 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 that's while believing that Curry is going to age about as well as like any player in history has. Because as long as he's going to be able to stretch the defense as an off-ball threat, he'll be useful. Um. But it just it they're they're just so over leveraged with these big contracts to guys that are really you know very into their primes or you know we're already past them um i just uh it sucks i mean i you know i grew up a warriors <laughs> fan like i got the the best five years i could have ever asked for from a fan perspective but uh i just don't i just don't think uh, there's a way back from this honestly shame on you for not being higher on andrew wiggins 
I do think he'll be better there than he's been anyplace else. But like, what kind of what kind of bar are we talking about? You know, with that, not be one of the worst, you know, dozen guys per dollar in the league. I do. I'm with you in the sense that if you if the Warriors are going to be a contender, I think you have to believe in what's already in place. I'm. You can't. I mean, you should never assume that Giannis Antetokounmpo is coming. But like, the logistics to get him would just be would be wild. And then yeah. they really just don't have a means to improve their team unless all of a sudden Andrew Wiggins or Draymond Green becomes an asset on their current deals, which I don't think either of them will be. I'm not out on Draymond, Green, Draymond Green's deal as much as everybody else. Uh, I do think it has the potential to age quite poorly after what we've seen this year. But you think if the stakes are higher and the games matter, he'll play harder. There's the injuries, obviously, to Clay Thompson and Steph that you have to consider. I think they can still be in the mix, but that their window, we're talking one or two years to win a title, and that's it. And where do you go from there is the issue, because I think Clay and Steph, their games can technically age quite well, maybe not so much for Clay on defense, but how are you going to surround them with the proper talent when, as you said, they are so over-leveraged? So I, I think next season, and probably the one after that, if we're looking at this team, they'll still be in the mix, and I think unless Stephen Curry all of a sudden isn't good next year or Clay Thompson falls off, there'll still be a draw if they're willing to spend the taxpayers mid-level exception or if, you know, if they're use, willing to use that trade exception. I think this would be the summer to use it because I do believe all these teams are going to be looking to cut money uh, relative to how much the cap shrinks and then the revenue hit that they've taken this year. So maybe this might be the ideal summer if you're willing to spend to use that trade exception, the flip side being are the Warriors going to be among the teams that are willing to spend when you just paid, you know, to have chase center and that revenue, not only is it not going to be there for the rest of this season, but it's probably not going to be there for most, if not all of next season. Right. That's I mean, talk about, that's the absolute biggest unknown is like that thing was supposed to, and would have put the Warriors in a position where their spending power, I think was just going to be astronomical. And I mean, you can see that by the way they built the roster. They just, I think, decided several years ahead of time, like, we're going to pay a bunch of tax. And now um, I just, I don't know if that's a sustainable way to operate because are we going to have fans at games? Like, I just, I, I don't know. What, what's, how does that change things? That, that's a whole other factor that I think probably cuts further against them kind of getting back close to what they were. I'm with you. I have another... Actually, let me go with a positive hard yes, truth. Yes, let's please do. Uh, and so I don't know which one it is, but one of the Thunder or the Pelicans need to enter this summer as buyers. Like They need to go on the superstar trade market and try and get involved. I don't know if that's... I, I think that's probably pretty on the, you know, on the, the spicy end of the spectrum just because... The Thunder, they were supposed to blow this roster up, and there are financial concerns being in a small market for them. They're in the tax right now for this year. If they re-sign Gallinari, they they won't be in it next year, but they'll be right up against it. And what what are the repercussions then of trading for a star? But they have uh, Dennis Schroeder, Steven Adams, two expiring deals. They have what could be 15 first-round picks between now and 2026. Uh, Go in there and see if you can enter the Bradley Beal discussions you're obviously not going to trade again for for victor oladipo and then the the superstar the potential superstar market gets pretty bare after that and so maybe i'm sort of overstating their their position but 
be on the lookout for that. I think they've played well enough to where, you know, is riding out Chris Paul's contract the worst thing in the world for them? I don't know how much they care about about money. I'm sure I'm sure it's a ton, so perhaps it is. For the Pelicans specifically, I don't want to read too much into the small sample size, but here's the fact of the matter anyway. You don't want to over-expedite a rebuild because then it puts you in this same over-leveraged um, and underperforming situation that you were in with Anthony Davis, and look at how that turned out. You don't want to botch uh, Zion Williamson's career in, in that vein, but you're already paying Drew Holiday star money. Brandon Ingram's about to get a max deal. Lonzo Ball's going to be extension eligible this summer. Ditto for for Josh Hart, and you have those picks that you receive from the Lakers. And look, those distant Lakers first-round picks, they have the option that I'm looking at the, the 2024 Lakers pick with the option to defer until 2025. That low-key is one of the best trade assets in the NBA. I know the Lakers have Anthony Davis, but LeBron, if he's still playing, will he, one, be in L.A., or two, will age 56 LeBron, whatever he is <laughs> at that point, still be – at this level. And so I'm not, I wouldn't dangle that. It would have to be really for a fortunes turning talent. Um, but that can really anchor, I feel like a trade on its own. So if Bradley Beal becomes available, the New Orleans Pelicans should, should absolutely be involved. If for some reason, Giannis demanded a trade, uh, that's a team. I don't know if his fit with Zion Williamson is perfect. So maybe that's a terrible example, but they feel like they have the asset equity to do it. Lonzo ball is really good. And he's like fairly good salary matching fodder at this point. Yes, you do have to pay him. So that would factor in to his next team. Uh, if the Giannis thing did devolve, and I don't think it will. That's another hard truth. Giannis is going to sign the Supermax. That's, this might be terrible. Oh, fun. really? So, oh, let's get to that one then after this one, because that was another like pleasant whatever one. It had to do with 2021 free agency. Anyway, though, if Giannis doesn't sign the Supermax and the Bucks have to blow it up, I don't think it goes that route this offseason at least. But the Pelicans would be a prime landing spot for Chris Middleton. I would think he provides basically everything of what they need. So I'm, I'm looking if new Orleans was no, I'm not even going to say that name because that'll get out of control. So if I'm the Pelicans or I'm the thunder, one of these teams needs to go all in this summer. Like, let's just see it, see it happen. I'm not for waiting. I'm not trying to, at the same time, I'm not trying to ruin a rebuild either. And so this is, I would call it a pleasantly hard truth, but we don't need to gradual, um, play this for either team. And I also think maybe the harder truth is neither of these teams, I think, gets to the championship apex as currently constructed. And that's probably more aimed at New Orleans uh, yeah. than it is Oklahoma City just because they have more established talent and you sort of know that. I don't know what the Pelicans do at center long-term. I'm Jackson Hayes, I go back and forth on. Derek Favors is good. He's not great, but are you going to pay him this summer? Uh, is Zion Williamson, how is he going to do at the five if you want to really lean into those minutes? moving forward. So I want to see those teams buy. I want to see them use their mid-levels, uh, whichever ones they have access to, the non-taxpayer from New Orleans, and then depending on what Gallo costs, you know, I'd resign him if I was Oklahoma City and try and run this back because you could always move them if it's not a terrible deal. I want to see those two teams buy this offseason. I think the Thunder are the more intriguing of the two for me because I just feel like New Orleans is more likely to slow play this because they just... You know, they've got so many young guys that you could just sort of be conservative, hope some of your picks hit going forward, and then you've got just this ridiculous core. Obviously, you know, that's sort of ignoring the fact that you're going to have to pay Ingram basically now, and you've still got some other big contracts. But the the they seem more likely to kind of take the gradual approach, even though I do agree they are positioned to just, you know, swing real big if they want to. The Thunder... 
are so draft pick rich that they could basically do this, do both. They, because they could trade, they could take a huge swing. Yeah, bring Gallo back. Uh, you know, you probably don't want to go too long on that one. But even if you do, uh, you still got a zillion first round picks to attach if you ever have to trade them down the line. They could trade a bunch of these picks, a bunch of salary, whatever they want to do, and still not exhaust the the treasure trove of all these picks. So they could make a run and get a big name and then still just like, oh, well, that was cool for a year or two. Chris Paul's done now. We got all these first round picks. We can get off all this money or we can use these picks, wait the money out and just retool. I mean, they are so just flush that it's like not even risky for them to trade a bunch of picks <laughs> or to do whatever they need to do to win now because it's almost impossible for them to give up so many assets to win now that they wouldn't have a chance to win later. And I don't really think, I can't remember the last time, I guess you go back to some of those Boston teams that actually never really did, uh, you know, make the biggest trades. And Danny Ainge was always talking about like, Oh, we were in this, we were in that. Um, the Celtics, obviously the position they're in now, they played it just fine, but, um, it's hard to think of a team that had the opportunity to sort of just have everything both ways. Like the thunder do right now. Um, your Giannis thing surprised me. So you think it's done. You think he's going to sign the Supermax? I, maybe this is more fair. If he doesn't sign, I don't think he's leaving. I think he ends up re-signing him and walking. So at that point, why wouldn't you sign the Supermax? I, it would take a total playoff implosion, I think, for him not to sign the Supermax right now. And so that led me into what would be another hard truth is 2021 free agency is going to suck. Ooh, that's like that's a, a hot take, Dan. Sorry, but that's a hot take. That's not a hard truth. That's a hot take because I think <laughs> everybody thinks that it's going to be great. Let's look at the names that are making it great. I don't disagree with you, by the way. I'm just saying that the conventional wisdom says 2021 is like the holy grail of free agent classes. Right. And so are Paul George and Kawhi Leonard, who both have player options, are they going to leave the team that they chose to play for together? No, <laughs> probably not. I, um, I, may, I mean, maybe LeBron James has a player option that year. Is he going to leave Anthony Davis? If he, and if he does, where's, where's he actually going? Would he go, just go back to Cleveland? That's just his frequency. Isn't that interesting to me? Then you have Chris, Chris Paul is not going to decline his player option. I think we can all be pretty clear about that. Blake, Blake Griffin's not going to decline his player option. Gordon Hayward will be on the market as will Mike Conley, but are either of those top 25 players? No, they're like mid-level guys. Cause they're going to be 31 and 33. Wow, mid levels. That that's a hot take. Mike, Gordon, you're going to pay Mike Conley more than that after what you watched this year? Uh, probably. In two Gordon years? Hayward is mid level though. Yeah, all right, that's harsh. That uh, was a mean hot take. I guess Kyle Lowry's interesting, but it'll also be he'll be 35 at that <laughs> point. DeMar DeRozan's value has sort of cratered. You need to surround yeah. him with just four shooters who can defend and he's not I don't think he's that great of a player to to go to that length for. So then that leaves you with Rudy Gobert, like that's he's a primetime free agent. Don't if and that's if he gets there. Drew Holiday has a player option. My guess would be he declines it, twenty six point four million, just because he's like kind of in that sweet spot where he could probably sign another long term deal. Giannis might sign an extension with the Bucks or just stay in Milwaukee. Uh, Victor Oladipo, what is he going to look like post injury? And if he's, there's a chance he signs an extension still too. I don't know if, I don't think the Pacers really want to pay him what he would demand. So let's just assume he reaches the free agency market. But if this is, I, I, there's a realistic scenario in which the top prizes on the 2021 free agency market are Drew Holiday and Victor Oladipo to me. And that just makes it 
a lot less interesting because you know everyone below them like cool Danny Green's going to be a free agent. I love Danny Green, but he's going to be you, 34, you, 35, but, whatever. Bite your bite your tongue talking about Danny Green. Danny, um, Green Danny Green is phenomenal, but I'm just saying 2021 free agency is not going to be the banger that everyone thinks it's going to be. So all the player options definitely serve your point because like you said, there's a lot of guys that are going to be on the wrong side of 30 in a very uncertain financial landscape that might want to just take the mid $30 million year they've got and, you know, run it back for 22. Um, the other thing is there's so many guys that are over 30, all the, almost all the big names are over 30, which, uh, and, you know, potentially just inching closer and closer to being washed while still being big names, which Dan means that at least two of them are going to sign with the Knicks. So you're going to be seeing, <laughs> like, you know what, Gordon Hayward and Mike Conley? You're going to be two New York Knicks starters for the 21-22 season. Mark it down. Wow, they're going to have Mike Conley and Chris Paul on the same team? That's going to be interesting. <laughs> Where's Chris Paul going to play next year? If you, if you had, I mean, I know we want to just talk about the Thunder, but we should. Do, I'm just curious on your thoughts. He should be playing for the Jazz or the Sixers. Those are the teams that he should be playing for. Miami, of course, if... Giannis Antetokounmpo signs the Supermax. He's going to be playing for the Knicks. That's just my gut feeling at this point. It kind of feels that way. It really kind of does feel that way. That's why the, the Knicks made me think of him too. Um, you know what though? The East isn't that hard to make the playoffs. Chris Paul with like a couple upgrades and if RJ Barrett gets right, that, any better. That just shouldn't be the goal though. Like, no, hey, but it always that. is. It always is. Sorry, but that's always the goal. I don't care who's in charge anymore. It doesn't matter. It's systemic. I'm I'm totally with you. Uh, do you have? I have one more hard truth. Do you have another one? Uh, not any one that I'm itching to get to. So let's hear yours. I am very concerned about the Brooklyn Nets' future. I feel oh, like, we talked about this last time. Oh, did we? Then maybe. Yeah, no. Let's hear it. I, I'm I have not grown less concerned. Let's let's do it. He, I don't think here's what. Uh, so we already talked about the injuries to Irving and Durant, and I actually had a long podcast about this with the Daily News' Christian Winfield, so I'm not going to step on the toes of that. I really don't believe that they should be going out there trying to consolidate their talent into a third star, and so maybe this is the – I don't think it's a harder truth to digest. Maybe if you're not a Nets fan, it might be, but they have more intriguing trade packages than people are giving them credit for. Jared Allen, uh, cost-controlled for now but just sort of a nice throw-in, and centers don't really cost that much anyway, so getting him right before restricted free agency I don't think ends up being a huge deal. Karis LeVert is on a very reasonable contract. I remain high on him just for his off-the-dribble creation, and I think he's shown a lot as a passer as well. You have Spencer Dinwiddie, could hit free agency after next year, obviously, but just a great another type of shot creator player. And then if you throw in just... You know, they have other salary matching, Torian Prince for salary matching, but if you throw in distant first-round picks for this team... That becomes very interesting because of the Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving situation. They have player options on their fourth year. So who knows whether they stay, who knows what the Nets look like at that point, whether those two are even playing well. At the same time, just because I don't know what you're going to get from Durant and Kyrie Irving, I think depth ends up being more important than having a, a third star. And there's an overall debate between what's better. Let's say having three stars or having two stars and just more of a digestible or like rotation below them where you can go eight or nine guys deep. Um, the Nets have the potential to get there. If you re-sign Joe Harris, you have Jared Allen, Karis LeVert, Spencer Dimwitty. You need to go that route until you know what Kyrie Irving or Kevin Durant is. And so I'm talking about specifically this offseason that I think trading for a third star would be a mistake if insofar as they can. And I don't know who 
I don't know if there's a name you personally could throw out there that would make me second guess this take, but on the scale of where I'm looking at, even if Joel Embiid became available and the Nets could get him, I wouldn't do that for them just because now you're adding another injury plague star into the equation on a huge money deal. And I think depth is more important for them. And the Bradley Beal stuff, um, the Daily News talked about this and Brian Winters of ESPN has mentioned it. The Nets seem like they're very much in on Bradley Beal. I get you want a score at his level if you don't think Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving are going to be A, reliably available, or B, particularly in Durant's case, the same player. But like, what happens on defense then? I'm not saying that Dinwiddie or Lavert are these lockdown defenders, but like, you've now invested all of your resources in, uh, you know, Kevin Durant was is a good defender when he or was a good defender when he was healthy. Kyrie Irving, we saw some good moments from him in Boston, but like Bradley Beal has been atrocious this year. And even if you take the best seasons defensively from Kyrie Irving and Bradley Beal, you probably have close, still a below average backcourt defense. That's what I would, how I would spin it. And I'm, I understand that Levert is going to require reinvestment at some point, And so will Dimwitty, but there's just, I, I would rather see the Nets divvy up their, their resources, their cap space, rather than go after a big three model that I think is just going to, to crater, just looking under the context that it would come for them. You have to at least see what Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant are, not just together next season, but specifically with Kevin Durant, what what he looks like. And so that's my, I think most people would say, look, if the Nets, you can turn their available assets into a, a star. Is it Victor Oladipo? Is it, is it Bradley Beal? You absolutely do it. I just, I wouldn't. I need to see what Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant are before you obliterate what depth you've put together. So... I think what I would say to that is if you look at, and it's always unfair to use the, the, the Warriors as a point of comparison, but like, look, they were the best team in the league or very close to it for, for like five years. So, so that's what I'm using as sort of a baseline. And I think if, you know, in addition to multiple and two might be enough superstar scoring, you know, guys like Durant and Irving could maybe be, I'm with you. I don't, I don't think maybe I'm not with you. Maybe this is just me. I don't think that those two are good enough will or will be good enough or reliable enough or uh, have the capacity to lead a a winning team at, at this stage together. But you need two guys like that. And then you need a whole bunch of guys that are dramatically outplaying their salaries. And so to your point, if you go get a third star, the best you can hope for is a guy that plays up to his salary. And then you've stripped away all of your other value add guys that are outperforming what they're being paid. So just use Beal as an example. He'll be worth whatever he's going to make. He's very good. But then to do that, you're losing Dinwiddie or some combination of Dinwiddie, Lavert, Allen, all of whom I think are very, very likely to play well above what they're being paid going forward. And so because I think you need both, you need superstars and you need a bunch of guys who several, a couple of whom pop, like let's say Levert becomes an all-star unlikely, but possible. And he's going to make $16 million next year. Like that's the kind of thing you need. And that's really what made the Warriors able to do what they did. You know, they had not, not to mention a bunch of like David West on the minimum, like things like that, but Livingston over playing, you know, way more than providing more than it certainly, at least in the playoffs, than he was being paid. Draymond Green doing much more than, you know, his salary would indicate should be expected of him. Clay Thompson, same way. We're talking about their previous contracts, not these ones that they're on now, but you need all that stuff. 
And if you go trade for a big uh, a third star, in addition to not knowing what Durant and Irving are going to give you, you're totally removing the possibility of getting you know these above market values, which you, I think you just you got to have a bunch of them to win a title. Look at the Raptors last year. You know, right. Another another example. Um, I just I, I just think the third star is the 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 you know the ticket seller if tickets get sold the 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 appealing <laughs> idea, but it's not uh, yeah it's not going to do it. Um, I, I think their best their most likely path to a title, as unlikely as all those paths appear to me, is to rely on the guys that they've already signed to really good deals and just hope it works. Uh, that 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 seems like the the only way to do it. I'm I'm totally with you there, and so I'm. I forgot that we had had a lengthy podcast about this, so I won't spend any more time on it, but I'm, I'm in full agreement with you. And the Nets are just a fascinating situation to look at. I think if Durant and Irving, or if Durant was going to be the player he was in OKC and Golden State, you have no problem with the direction the franchise is mm-hmm. headed in and the power that they've given to these players who have, you know, frankly, over their career, particularly Durant, has really just earned the benefit of the doubt there. But just they've everything from what the Nets were that attracted Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving to them or or at least that's what they said to what they are now. They're just, they're traveling this just rickety slope and it's, it's going to be fascinating to see how it plays out. And I, I just don't think it's going to end. I won't say it will end up poorly, but I definitely don't think if they consolidate this roster that it, it ends, it culminates with them being a legitimate title contender. It might just be one of those like cutesy, like, Oh yeah. Like, yeah, we could envision a path if all these people get injured to them uh, making it to the championship round. I mean, honestly, it's sort of, this is an unfair comparison, but it's it sort of feels like when, I guess it's a little different, but when Brooklyn, you know, oh, we got Kevin Garnett, we got Paul Pierce now, we got, you know, different circumstances, but, <laughs> but it's like, look, th- there were indications that this was not going to go great when they signed Irving and Durant, because Durant coming off the injury, Irving basically leaving his second team in a row on bad terms, like there were definitely signs that this wasn't... It, it, the names are one thing, right? You see Durant, you see Irving, you think of their careers, and it's like we're in business, right? But really, even if you strip away all the other things we just talked about, you know, I don't, I don't think it was ever realistic to think there was a title ceiling just because we got these two guys, considering sort of where they were in their careers when the Nets got them. That's, I get the spirit of it, but I think what really helps the situation is. Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving are still younger than Pierce and Garnett were, even though the Durant injury is obviously unprecedented for the caliber of player that he is. The other thing is, is they have yet to at least strip down their future because of it. So they didn't give up all these future assets to get them. Totally different for that reason. Yeah. And yeah, but more, more of the idea of like, look at these names we got, we're ready to go. Cause I remember when all those guys came together, it was like, man, the nets are as good as anybody in the East. It's just, you know, so, that was a poor comparison, but think about it. where the Nets were last summer. You, they knew Kevin Durant weren't wasn't going to play, but you landed Kyrie Irving. You had Kevin Durant. I mean, you had DeAndre Jordan, but there were good vibes with uh, Karis LeVert because of how well he played in the playoffs and even before his injury during the regular season last year. And just look at the roster now, where you had to sign Jamal Crawford just to to field an actual <laughs> rotation in in the bubble. Yeah, they uh well somebody was somebody tweeted it might have been Christian Winfield tweeted uh like they <laughs> the Nets had like six or seven former Knicks two of which were, <laughs> were a joke but like it was kind of nuts that that really was like ooh there's a little bit of overlap here that's not a good thing I'm interested to see what they do with Joe Harris in free agency too because I feel like he's still one of the players that even in a cap starved market could end up getting more than the MLE 
because he fits offensively yeah. anywhere. And it, it seems like he's the player that a Nets team would need, but that maybe Kyrie Irving wouldn't value. And I'm only saying that because Kyrie <laughs> Irving sounded like he wanted to trade half the roster during the middle of the season. Right. Well, that's the other thing is, I mean, if sort of wherever Harris winds up, I think, and if it's Brooklyn, he'll be out of that class of guys that are sort of underpaid, I think, because I agree, like there's nowhere that he doesn't fit because shooting travels elite 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 shooting travels so if he makes i don't know i mean if he makes he, the, the mle is the absolute minimum for him i think and and if the nets if you if, get you him know, for the non-taxpayers mle whether you're the nets or another team i don't maybe i'll fall short of saying that's an absolute steal but that's good value that's oh good no great that's value. A, that's a steal i think okay just because what he does for everybody else that's on on the floor with him um but yeah like if the nets have to contend with some other team that's you know, one of the few with cap space, it's like, we're thinking 15, 16 a year for Joe Harris. And then that's have to beat that. Then suddenly he's sort of properly paid, which is not what they need. Well, do you have any other hard truths? I think my last hard truth is I don't have any more hard truths for you. That's sad, but our <laughs> listeners might be all six of you might be happy that this is over because we've gone for almost a buck 20. Nice, nice long podcast to take you in to the weekend though. Grant, Thank you, as always, for coming on and spending so much time uh, speaking with me. If you're not following Grant on Twitter, at GT underscore Hugh, spelled exactly as it sounds. And I just want to remind you, doing this at the end of the podcast now, please, please, pretty please with sugar on top, please continue rating, reviewing, and subscribing to us wherever you get your podcasts. No matter where you get your podcast, though, if you could pop into iTunes, throw us that five-star rating, and write a review. Those help us a, a ton. If it includes constructive criticism, Give us the five-star review and write whatever you want. I'm partial to takes about Adam's calves, so go ahead over there. Uh, we, we very much appreciate that. Follow us on Twitter at Hardwood Knox. You can follow us on YouTube. Search YouTube. Uh, go to YouTube. Search Hardwood Knox. We'll be right there. But Grant, thank you so much for coming on. I really enjoyed this discussion. My pleasure. Thanks.